morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, <clears throat> to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. As we continue our journey through the book of Samuel. First Samuel chapter 8. Um, this morning we'll be reading through the first <clears throat> eight verses of this chapter. And um, that's where we'll be this morning. So the beginning of chapter 8. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second was Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in the ways, not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, or would be uh, money, and took bribes and perverted judgment. And then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing, that dis- but this then displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I have brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you, God, that we have the privilege of coming together as the church of Christ. Lord, that we're united under one king, and that is King Christ. And Lord, I pray today, Father, that you would enable me with the power of of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Grant me the ability to be able to proclaim your word. And Lord, I ask God that you would send your spirit into the hearts of your people. Open their hearts, Lord. Give them the ability to concentrate and hear what it is that you'd have to say to them this morning. Lord, that we can all grow in grace. That the word of God would change us permanently. Lord, that your word would not only encourage us, but it would convict us. Lord, that it would sanctify us and wash us and prepare us, Lord, soon to meet our coming King, that the Bible promises that he will return. And Lord, we love you and we praise you. We give you all the honor. We exalt you over this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we examined the extraordinary Ministry of Samuel. If you had not had an opportunity to listen um, to the sermon that was preached last Sunday, I would definitely encourage you to do that um, and kind of bring you up to speed. But if not, I would ask you just to go through the Word of God and read it for yourself and bring yourself up to where we're at at this point. And looking at the um, extraordinary ministry of Samuel, how his calling was an all consuming passion to glorify God and how his life reflected the all-consuming dedication of his mother, Hannah. We observed his flexibility in the way he operated as a circuit judge and acclimated his services to fit the need of the hour. He had a blessed circuit ministry, which has its spiritual lessons for us as we went over last Sunday. He first visited Bethel, which is... Um, translated the house of God. We must understand that judgment first begins there. And then we read uh, when Jacob was obedient to the divine call, God said, arise, go up to Bethel. He buried his strange gods, the household gods under the oak of Shechem. So the evil things must be put away. Then we see Gilgal was his second place. And Gilgal represents what? The reproach of Israel rolled away. And this is what we need, to be freed from the world, dead to it, and the world dead to us. Then we see Mitzpah was his third station, 
which means watchtower. And this means, you know, that the saints, people of God, need to be watchful. Watchful over the Word of God. Watchful over their lives. Watchful over the calling and ministry of their lives. It's a constant need to be on guard and to watch against the foe, as well as look upward and forward from mitzvah to the blessed home where he is and which he shall surely share with him, which is brought to Rama, which we saw this represented. Rama actually means the heights exalted where Samuel's home was. And we read how he returned home. He built his altar, which here we see the foe, we see this, this idea of the home being where the altar of God. His understanding of the importance of the home. Samuel, by God's grace, had united the people again under the true living God. In all of this, we as believers cannot miss the type and picture of Christ that is represented in the life of Samuel. In chapter 7, uh, verse 8, we read that the children of Israel said to Samuel, they said, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. The last time Israel was in this kind of situation, they said, let's get the Ark of the Covenant and take it into battle with us. Then we can't lose. Now they were much wiser before the Lord, and instead of trusting in the Ark, they did the right thing and asked Samuel to cry out to the Lord, our God force, a mediator. They cried out for a mediator. And in this, God was pleased. Jesus himself said in John 79, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that man is Christ Jesus. Which brings us to our text this morning. From these eight verses, I'd like to continue to examine the life of Samuel and as it pertains to the people of God. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. You see, Samuel was getting old. Therefore, he decided his sons might help him. But this was not in Samuel's jurisdiction, nor a decision he could make. Judges were those called and raised up by God during the times of great catastrophe or great crisis. Um, They were called in time of emergency. But the only crisis we read here is that Samuel was getting old. And even the elders confirmed this in verse 4. Some believe he was in his late 50s at the time. Some even think he was in his 60s. Either way, Samuel was old. And this also could be a reference not only to his age, as some commentators have suggested, but partially due to his labor and the taxing nature of his work. Now, we've all heard the phrase that the stress of this job has added years to our lives. And we know that Samuel was a workhorse. In 1 Samuel 7, 15, it says that Samuel judged Israel all the days, not just some of his days, not a portion of his days, not just a part of his calendar or fitting it into his schedule, but he judged Israel all the days of his life. He was fully invested, fully committed to the things of God. His task was not easy. Consider his job description, especially as a circuit judge. In 1 Samuel 7 16, it says he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Samuel did an awful lot of judging. His task was dealing with people's problems, squabbles, disputes, and, yes, their sin. Similar to that of Moses. The physical demands would have been hard, the traveling and so on, but being human as we are, the consistent job of settling disputes and even operating in a priestly fashion with a self-made altar, would have been entirely exhausting. This idea of Samuel, as it says, was old. 
I mean, really, I mean, obviously I'm 50, almost 52, you know, and this idea of old age really doesn't set in, even at my age is 52, or those who are getting older. I mean, he was, they say, you know, he's in his 50s, maybe uh, his beginning 60s, and he was considered an old man. And even in verse 4, the elder said, man, you're, you're old. So what are they signifying? Because we know, ultimately, the scriptures say, you know, 70 plus is regarded as old. You know, but here we see that the, the physical demands that were on Samuel's life, but not only the physical demands. But this idea of operating in a capacity, just imagine this, where you're on a continual circuit, not only just at your uh, traveling around to the localities, dealing with other people's problems, right? Imagine doing this even at your home. Imagine this is your entire ministry, totally sold out, totally invested, but dealing with people. And let us not forget, Samuel is not a superhero. Yes, he was led by the presence of God. He was empowered by the presence of God to do what he did. But he was a human being just like the rest of us. And we all know the taxing nature that people can have on us. Maybe even how we tax others. But this reality was consistent in Samuel's life. And you can only imagine what this type of ministry would do upon the physicality of the human life. His constitution probably began to wear down. It was probably recognized, man, you're looking old. You know, I know people say, oh, ministry just adds so much life to my life. I feel so invigorated and this and that. But the reality was that I think true biblical ministry, anytime you deal with people, anytime you take this leadership position over people spiritually, you're going to have a lot of, of pressure on your life in so many ways. It's true. If any of you guys have dealt in this reality, you definitely understand what I'm saying. For one commentator says, for we may presume not only that he gave legal decisions with prophetic wisdom, but also that in general he conducted the affairs of the people as a man who had the spirit of the Lord. But we must recognize as well, 2 Samuel 23.3 says, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in what? The fear of God. This really is the qualification, I think, for all ministry. Any type of ministry, any type of leadership uh, position should run on this principle that we need to be just and we need to rule in the fear of God. The judges of Israel were deliverers from oppression, leaders in war, perpetual dictators in national affairs, and supreme arbiters in judicial matters. Another commentator said, all that was great in those times are certainly due to them. And some of their names shine eternally like bright stars in the long night of a troubled age. Of these judges, Samuel was the last and the greatest. Samuel's leadership even reflects what we see in the Pauline epistles which are letters written to the elders of the church and how to conduct themselves and deal with issues in the church. And this is why I believe that the qualifications of an elder are clearly, clearly stated because of the nature of the ministry they're involved in. It's extremely important because we see this principle all throughout Scripture that when God calls a man into ministry, he first deals with the man himself. Because the man himself, if he's not in a place where he is walking in holiness, truly in fellowship with the Lord, um, his conduct and his behavior aren't in alignment with the word of God. I mean, this reality that his strength and his ability um, to be able to operate and function in such a capacity really deals with the person himself. Obviously, we trust in God, we walk in the Spirit, we're led by God, we're enabled by the power of God. But the reality is, is that there is an expectation to biblical leadership that those who are in leadership, God first deals with that person first. That person must be qualified for the task at hand. Not just he's called to look, he's qualified, but the reality is there's a reason why he walks in such a way. Because this gives him the ability and the enablement to be able to deal with others. Because we don't want to deal with others from a hypocritical spirit. 
or stand in judgment of others when you yourself are not walking with the Lord. It's extremely important that any task is taken upon any man when it comes to biblical leadership. They need to be committed, fully committed to the Lord. They need to be fully invested. They must be flexible, but they must be holy. They must be godly in order to operate in such a fashion. Not only just for the benefit of their relationship with God, but for the benefit of their own soul. How can you walk in such a way and not be hindered in everything that you do if you haven't built up this inward, which is the integrity, right? Is the inward strength, right? The integrity of anything is the, is the inward strength of that specific object. And the integrity is really what keeps us in a place of safety. And this is very important in any realm of leadership. Especially when we see we're obviously in the New Testament. We're New Testament saints. And that they speak of the person first, then the person's conduct. For example, in 1 Timothy 3.1 it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer or an elder, he desires what? Not some mundane task, but a noble task. Nobility comes from this idea of priestly or kingship, you know, that, you, that, it, that you're walking in such a way that you're, you're, you're desiring a, a noble task. It's, it's, a, it's a noble calling. But the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 6, that you need to be what? Above reproach. You need to be respectful. Respectable, sorry. Respectful too. We need to be well thought of by what? Outsiders. Do you ever hear people say, I don't care what other people think? That's foolish. Just saying, I don't care what other people think, is also basically saying you do care what other people think. Because the moment you say it, it's in response to something that's being said about you, right? I do care about what other people think. Now, I don't necessarily care about what the naysayers say. I, could, I don't care about that. I'm not going to compromise to please the world, what they think. But I care about what God thinks. I care about what my wife thinks of me. I care about what my kids think of me. And I care about what you think of me because it counts. This is what the Bible says. In order for me to be in this position that I'm in, I need to be respectable and I need to be well thought of by outsiders. What's that mean? I need to have a good reputation. Okay, I can't be out just, you know, hitting the clubs and doing all these things. I mean, what would that kind of signify to all of you? This reality, it's that we need to operate and function in a certain matter, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, in a way that our reputations are well thought of by outsiders. And the last one, which this isn't all of them, there's many more, but hit on some of the key ones that relate to um, our text this morning. In 1 Timothy 3, 4, must manage his household well. Must manage your household well. And I think this is where most of us get into trouble. Because everything else, I mean, honestly, everything else, I mean, I hate to say it, you're not going to fake it before God, but you can fake that before others. You can, you can put on a show, right? You can perform well, look well, but in reality, your life's an utter mess. But when it comes to managing your household well, how do people know whether or not you're managing your household well? Not that your kids come rolling into church drunk, but the reality is like, have they been in your home? Have they, have they experienced hospitality from your hand? Because the Bible tells us that we're to be hospitable and operate in such a way where we're to invite people in our homes. Why do we do that? We do that because we want, to t- we, want to, we want to bless them, we want to serve them, but also they want to see us. And we can hide until they come in our home. And then they can look and look around, they can see our, the way we function with our wives, we function with our children, and then they can see that, oh, because... You guys know, husbands know, it's almost impossible to hide or a facade when people come in and they, what, meet your family, right? They're going to notice some things that you may not even notice. Um, and it really is, is this, this is why it's so important for, um, and I won't beat on this too long, but this is why it's very important for um, elders to have families, I think, because... It's a true sanctifier because it really is the litmus test of 
how that man's going to function in the body of Christ, to the locality of his church, how he's going to shepherd the flock, will be really in parallel. A lot of times, not perfectly, don't get me wrong, but in the way his family thinks of him. Family thinks he's an absolute, utter, you know, disgrace. And then he's walking around in church like a superhero. There's definitely something wrong. But I'll tell you this much. This, any kind of leadership... Any kind of leadership is not for the faint-hearted. But anytime you are given the responsibility of leadership over God's people in any capacity, it will be. It will be difficult. I used to travel quite a bit. I'm not sure if you know, but I was pretty um, involved and I would speak at conferences, but we would travel. I preached a lot outdoors, 13 years open-air preaching uh, and different things, but I had a lot of, and I still do have a lot of pastoral friends, and some are pretty prominent. I know a lot of um, pastors, and I remember this time when I wasn't a pastor, and I would talk to these pastors, and they would tell me these horror stories about what it was like to pastor a church. And I remember saying to myself, like, there is no way on God's green earth am I ever going to pastor a church. I have no desire. I don't want to deal with it because I just. I was an evangelist. I traveled. I preached. I blew things up, you know. And I and that's just was the nature. I was kind of aggressive, uh, a little bit intimidating. I was a little abrasive, a little bit harsh. I just built that personality from being on the street so much and getting so much of adversity. I had built this almost like um, I don't want to say maniac, but a little bit of a barbarian mode of of the Christianity that God had called me to. Um, and then now I find myself um, five and a half years um, into pastoring a church. And it's still baffling to me. It's a beautiful thing, but it is the most taxing thing I've ever done. Even though we have a small church, um, just the nature of it, um, of, of pastoring, not just you and I and our relationship, but the nature of the spiritual warfare. I've never tasted anything like it in my entire life. Like as far as street preaching, tons of spiritual warfare. But as far as pastoral ministry, it's a whole different animal altogether. And sometimes people just don't get it until they have tasted it themselves. And then they understand. This is why um, as elders, you know, we need your prayers. We need you to pray for us. You know, we need you to lift us up. We need you to cry out on behalf of us for our families and for our marriages and for the uh, personal sanctification and holiness of, of what God has called me to do, knowing that the struggles come, the temptations come more than it ever come in my entire life of being a Christian. You know, but my desire is, is, is to live fully present before you. Uh, but in order for me to do that, um, you know, we have to work and sing. And I need your prayers. I need you to lift our family up and really be purposeful about this. Put me on your list. I don't care if I'm at the bottom of it, but just put me at the list and, and pray for us because um, we need your prayers. We are in a very attacked family in so many different ways, and I'm not going to get into, but we need your help. Um, we really need to put on the full armor of God. And God commands us for our own health, the success in ministry, especially in pastoral ministry. Samuel himself is considered one of the godliest men in the Bible. But listen, even his godliness does not make him immune to sin. Making his son judges, regardless of their limited capacity in Beersheba, was shockingly sinful. Believe it or not, how dare you call Samuel sinful, right? But it's true. Um, that decision wasn't his decision. That's not how judges are called and rise up. They're called by the hand of God. It's not this passing down ministry. It was not his call. He had no right to make his kids judges in any capacity. And I believe this is where um, things start to go south um, in this realm for Samuel. We never have the pattern of judges being appointed by men or the office of judge being passed down from father to son. No dynastic rule here when it comes to judges in Scripture. Samuel's not right to appoint his sons judges over Israel. And the case may be like the minister who preaches and he prays with everyone else but neglects his own family. You familiar with those types of ministries? had a good friend of mine who I told you last Sunday who uh, his father spent many, many hours and days and on the streets with a soup kitchen 
feeding everybody, praying for everybody, winning people to the Lord. But when he got home, he was an, ab- he was an absolute monster. He said, my dad never prayed with us, never prayed with my mom. All he did is argue and yell at his mom, yell at my mom, and he never prayed with us kids. So he was, like, he was this model Christian on the street and outside of his home, but within the context of his home, he was a monster, hypocritical. And this is something that we need to be uh, aware of. And this reality that sometimes ministry can cloud our discernment. Or let's say the mechanic who is always always busy fixing everybody else's car while his own car is broke down in his driveway. Samuel spent the majority of his life fixing other people's problems while at the same time he overlooked his sons. He was so invested in other people, called by God. It was his ministry. It was his calling. He was enabled by the Spirit of God to be able to operate in this capacity, but to such an extent where it almost becomes so intoxicating in ministry, it becomes your identity, everything that you are, giving your whole entire life to it, that in the process of this, you miss your entire calling to your family. You miss the blatant sins of your children. And besides that, you operate in a way that you're not supposed to be operating. I mean, it's obvious he was getting old. He was probably worn out. He could only speculate that he was exhausted. But he reached out for help, but he reached out in the wrong way. He reached out to his kids who were not in any way, shape, or form ready for a ministry of judgment on other people. Any kind of authority over others. But I can only speculate. But as Moses needed Jethro, Samuel needed his two sons. And unfortunately, their ministry revealed who they truly were. And the people were not having it. The people were not having it at all. God did not call them to be judges. Samuel did. And this is the true litmus test of being called into the ministry. It just exposes who we are. Give somebody a little bit of authority in the church and watch who they truly become. It's kind of like the it's kind of like the nerd in school is always getting picked on and bullied, and he becomes a policeman, right? It's this this you're not you're not able to function with that kind of authority. But I'll tell you what: put someone in authority, and you will see really quickly what they're truly made of. Give them a ministry and see what happens. And that's why we always have a probationary period and people say, well, I feel like I'm called to the ministry. I feel like I'm called to do that. First thing is first, did you, do you, have you earned the trust of the congregation? Number one, do they, do they trust you to be, for you to be ministering to them? Okay, because they might not trust you. And how long have you been here? What's your consistently like? What's your home life like? What does your whole entire life look like? And this is the, um, what's expressed through Scripture. But I believe Samuel needed help. I just think that he reached out to, the, to, to, to his sons. And when they got into ministry, it just exposed who they truly are. But it didn't only expose who his sons truly were. It also exposed who Samuel was as well. Now, I'm not saying Samuel was evil or evil intentions by any means. But I do think at some point his, his judgment became clouded and if they were his children and they were at the point where they could have operated in, in, in a judge format, he would have obviously been with them over a period of time. If they were fully adults and men operating in ministry, he wouldn't be a child. So he would have been with them. He would have had to have some idea that his children weren't right. Because they started functioning in, in, a, in a judge format, it's when their corruption really was exposed. I like what uh, A.C. Gabaline says. He says, Samuel makes the mistake in making his sons judges because he was a judge and prophet and he had success in it. His sons are to follow him in the exact same capacity. So he thought, God does not work by succession, nor does he transmit gift and power from father to son. The so-called apostolic succession and traditional authority is is, is an invention and one of the greatest factors in the corruption of Christianity. The Lord alone can call to service and give gifts for the ministry. Joel and Abijah were judges in Beersheba, but walked not in his ways. Whose ways? 
Samuel's ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and what perverted judgment. And this opened the way for the introduction of the monarchy in Israel. Interesting enough, God's providence in all of this. Here's the differences between, just so you know and you can understand, the difference between a king and a judge. A judge was a leader raised up by God, usually to meet a specific need in a time of crisis. When the crisis was over, usually the judge went back to doing what he did before. A king not only held his office as king as long as he lived, he also passed his throne down to his descendants. Judges did not make a government. They met a specific need in a time of crisis. Kings established a standing government with a bureaucracy, which can be both a blessing and a curse to any people. That's the difference. In Judges 8, we see Gideon was offered the throne over Israel. He refused it by saying, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And this was the heart of all the judges and why Israel went some 400 years in the promised land without a king. And the sad thing is he did not see the faults of his sons. He did not even see these. Or he did, and he kicked them under the carpet. We don't know. But we do know that he did not see them while the people have an eye for it. Others saw it. Others like, you know, they see, they see these faults in our families even, you know, um, in, in, in the operation even of our own families. People, people see you operating in a certain capacity and then obviously you may be so blinded because you're so caught up in what you've been called to do and you're, you're so successful and so good at it, you just take it on that your children will be as well and then you bring them in thinking they're going to be like you because of some transmission of your success to be transferred upon them. But other people are going, what in the world are you doing? Samuel seemed oblivious to his son's faults. This is a sad repetition of the sin of Eli. Just look at Eli and his sons. And now Samuel made his sons, made, Samuel made his sons, judges over Israel. None of them were called to ever fill their father's place. The people forgot that God's policy had been to raise up judges from time to time as they were needed. It's really a case of nepotism. I'm not sure if you're feeling what nepotism is, but it's this idea that we can... Um, pass our power and our influences upon relatives, favoring relatives over what's right, bringing family members in opposed to doing the right thing. And I think anybody could be guilty of this. Anybody would desire this. But the reality would be like, it'd be like, say, hypothetically, my son grows up and, you know, God didn't call him to be a pastor, but I put him into the pastoral role because it was the church that I was pastoring, thinking somehow this is what he needs to do because I did it, could be totally destructive, not only to his own ministry and life and family, but to the church as well. It's called nepotism. And success in ministry can, you know, ultimately if we're not careful, it can cloud our judgment. It can really cloud our judgment. It's scary. Because we can become very well uh, in what we do. We can be very good at what we do um, and almost be hypnotized by this reality to such an extent where we overlook the necessary and the needful. Matthew Poole says, Opportunity and temptation drew forth and discovered the corruption in them, which till now was hid from their father, and it may be even from themselves. Maybe they didn't even recognize how rotten they really were and how motivated they were in a wicked way until they became in a position of authority and they started getting the challenges. He says that they perverted judgment. They took bribes. I mean, they were definitely dealing with other people, but not in the right way. They're doing everything in the wrong way. Um, and this is where you can kind of see they were just making this whole calling, this calling of their father on their life as a means to, to be greedy and to be gross. And the people just weren't having it. In verse 2 it says, The name of his firstborn was Joel. And the name of his second was Abiah or Abijah. I think the J is silent. But they were both, it says that they were judges in Beersheba. They were operating uh, in this reality and in this ministry. But they messed up. 
Here's the idea too. Joel, which actually means um, Yah is God or Jehovah is God. Abaya actually means Yah is my father. Both of these names signify that they are called of God, that they're biblically, um, basically they're biblically called and confirmed just by their names. And these names signify a protest against the prevalent idolatry. And this is a very clear indication that many times the name doesn't match the person. Basically, you can't judge a book by its cover. Looks like a judge, but behaves like a pagan. And this was the reality here with, with, these, with these kids. They were, they were in, his kids were involved in ministry in such an extent where they were judging others but they were completely pagans at heart. Totally antithesis of the life of Samuel. I mean, this is why it can be startling to us because we read how Samuel's life came to be. We see where he came from a godly mother. We see that he testified to the beauty of her dedication, her drive before the Lord. When the Lord had closed her womb, yet she still continued because her motive wasn't just about her child. Her motive was about that she could have a child to give it back to God, to donate him to the Lord. Her desire was to please God and her determination and her dedication was really seen and highlighted in the life of Samuel. We see this reality of a godly parent and the impression and the influence that they make upon their child. And we can get excited about this because we can see this reality and it gives us encouragement as parents that you know we can influence our children in a very godly way, such as Hannah did. But then we see the life of Samuel, his godliness, himself operating in so many different capacities, in beauty, in power. But then we see his kids are totally apostate. Say, how did this happen? Well, this is a very clear point that we need to all sober up and understand. Just because you have lived a very godly life and are right with God, and have followed him all the days of your life, doesn't mean your children will. You'd be faithful and dedicated to the end, and it does not mean that your children will be. Your children can apostatize. Your children can grow up under a very devoted ministry, family devotions, the reading of God's word, much prayer, godly parenting, and totally rebel and hate God and go to hell. And it's not your fault. And this is what we see. I don't have any clue of... I didn't basically look to the future of his, of his children. <clears throat> but I do know that there was some of his, I believe, grandchildren or great-grandchildren that did operate in a way that was extremely godly. But his, his kids definitely were not oh, godly. But we see the names. You know, we see how important a name is. But we can't just trust in a name thinking that just because they've got a godly name... You see, people name their kids these names from the Bible... But their kids are totally like living like the devil. It's like, what's your name? My name is Moses, you know, but he's out robbing banks and doing everything else. The reality is his name doesn't match his lifestyle. I like what Proverbs 22, 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. It's interesting how the Hebrews um, looked at the names of their children, the Midrash, uh, which is a which a Hebraic form of interpreting scripture. They said the names of our children are the result of a partnership between our effort and God's response. Now, that's how the Hebrews looked at it, by the way. That is why the Hebrew word for name actually means what? Shem. Has the same numerical value as the word for book, which is Sefer, which is the number 340. Basically, believe that names are a book. They tell a story. The story of our spiritual potential as well as our life's mission. That explains the fascinating midrash or what should be story that tells us when we complete our years on earth and face the heavenly judgment, one of the powerful questions will be asked at the outset is this. What is your name and did you live up to it? What is your name and did you live up to it? I'll just say this much. I didn't live up to my name. I didn't. 
You know, if that's the case, as beautiful as that sounds, and I understand the reality of having integrity and being a man of honor, being a man of your name, I get all that. But if that's going to deal with my salvation when I stand before God and he asks me to live up to my name, the only answer I can say is no, I did not live up to my name. Which is, which, which is why, thank God, it won't be my name given on that day where I stand, but on the mighty name of Christ. No one has lived up to their name, and this is why we need Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. That's our spiritual inheritance. You know, I always believe that we are to be godly. We are to have good integrity. We are to live up to our names. But the reality is, we don't want a bad name. I get all of that. But when we stand before God, the only name that's going to really matter is that you have called upon the name, that you are his, you belong to him. I like what it says in 1 Samuel 25, 25, when it really deals with this issue. It says, please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabel is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Names are extremely important, don't get me wrong. But the name that's most important is the name of Christ. That you have settled with Christ. That you have been offered his terms of peace and you've accepted. That you've repented of your sin. That you've turned from your idols and you've cast yourself totally upon the free grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, but the sons did not walk, but his sons did not walk in his ways. It's, it's really almost a startling standstill when it says, when it talks about Samuel. But then it says, it says Samuel um, was old, but stops you right there and says his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside to dishonest gain, took bribes, and they perverted justice. Really, they were just, they, they, their, their hearts were revealed that they were greedy, they were lustful, and they had this hunger and desire for power. And this is the fallen nature of man, right? This is the fallen nature. Even when we are converted, you know, sometimes we, we, we get pulled aside and um, we get tempted or we get tested in these areas where, you know, we allow our greed to, to overshadow um, the right way to go. You need money, you know, and instead of trusting in the Lord, your heart starts to turn over to greed. And then lust and power, taking bribes, doing all these things, but still operating as a judge. But in verse 4, it says, And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, which had been at his home, and said to him, Look, confirming you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Let's just stop here real quick, just for one second, because there's solutions here and there's problems here. First of all, the elders had every right to confront Samuel. They had every right, every right. They did not have to accept the leaders who are obviously ungodly and unfit to lead. No doubt Samuel was stung by the rejection of his sons, but more than that, Samuel saw the ungodly motive behind the elders requesting for a king as well. So it's twofold. I mean, the, this idea of having people around you, leadership around you, because you're never, listen, you're never at a point in your life where you can't be called out or corrected or confronted. There's never a position or status in your life, no matter what title you want to lay upon it, you're never above correction. And this is why it's so dangerous to operate without accountability. I mean, ministry can be lonely, especially uh, when you're operating in the capacity of Samuel. It also can be extremely dangerous if you're operating in such a way 
and you've got nobody around you. First of all, when you're by yourself and you have this not necessarily prideful sense that you're better than everybody else, but you have this sense about the calling of your ministry where you feel that you don't have anybody to talk to. It can be very lonely. It can be very um, dangerous as well, but it, it, it shouldn't be lonely. Um, because, you know, you should be able to have people to lean on, people to talk to. I think this was so important about having a plurality of elders because God knew, built into his church, that this would be, you know, something that we needed. Moses, you know, he needed Jethro for help. You know, Samuel needed help. Unfortunately, he went the wrong way with his help. But he did need, at the end of the day, <clears throat> he needed help. He needed someone to come in and stand with him. Obviously, these elders were, were, were kind of out of their mind as well. But the reality of stopping this whole, the, these kids that, no, wait a minute, they're not going to continue to judge over us. Not the way that they operate. But also they fell into sin themselves by wanting to be like the world. Wanting to be like everybody else. Wanting to have a king like everybody else. So that was their own sin. But let us not miss the powerful point here of confronting Samuel and his sin. It's the right thing to do. And I think it's the right thing to do today. Don't be opposed and act like you're in such a place of spirituality in your life where you can't be confronted. Don't ever get to that point in your life where you think you're above it. When you're in such a place, you become a little pope. And nobody can touch you. Nobody can correct you. No one can say anything to you without you getting offended. And this is really a situation where we can all learn from, regardless of whatever capacity that you operate. Be a person, whether a woman or a man, be a person that another person can talk to. One of the biggest fears that I always have, what I've seen in this church, and I don't always like using myself as a reference point to explain stuff, and that's awful. But the, the reality is, is that I've seen personally confronting people as lovingly as I can, as gentle as I can, trying not to offend them, bringing something there to their attention, and two weeks later you never see them again. And it's just it's it's just a continual pattern in today's church in America. It really is. Even in our little reformed churches, nobody likes to be told that they're doing something wrong. No one likes to be corrected. People are generally, especially in our day, rebellious against any kind of authority. They don't want to be confronted. And when they are, they, they, they pretend they're not offended, but then all of a sudden they're called to another church. How many times have I heard that I were, were we've been called to another church? It's like, why don't you just repent? Right? If you're, if you're offended, let's work it out. Let's show the body of Christ how we function as the body of Christ. We're not like the world. We don't walk away, take your ball and go home. We work it out. Let's show the church how we work it out, unless there's sin involved, in the sense to where you're being told to do something that's unbiblical. Or there's something that um, is totally, like, heretical to the point where it can't be resolved. I mean, you've got, like, a cult leader. You know, the guy turns into a cult leader. That's different. Go. Run. But if it's just a, if it's a problem, and those problems can get pretty severe, you know, um, things happen in the church. People are people. They struggle. They have problems. They fall. They have failures. You see very messy lifestyles. But that's the whole point because the church has, an, has the answer. We have the gospel. We have Christ. We have the scriptures. We have the ultimate authority. The world doesn't. We go storming out of church because we're just showing we're childish and we can't sit down and talk through these things and allow God to transform us through a sanctifying power of being offended, then you've got a bigger problem. You've got a bigger problem than the problem we're dealing with. A lot of it walk out of the church, it's like, you know what? Your problem isn't about whatever we're dealing with at the moment. You have a bigger problem. You don't think you can be corrected. And that's huge. I can only imagine what your home life looks like. If you can't even sit down with me and have a discussion without getting offended and quitting the church, I can't even imagine what goes on in your house. Or the rest of your dealings, your job or anything else where you're at because you're just that type of person. And it's sad because we all need to repent of that. Even myself, I need to make sure that I too am willing to be submissive and listen to other people. Even the church. I know we're an elder-led church, 
But that doesn't mean that the church is canceled from having any kind of say in the pastor's life. That's ridiculous. They, they do. And they can confront me and they can take me aside biblically, gently, and kind and talk through things. That's why we're here. We're a family, right? They wanted a king. And this also obviously was not something that Samuel thought was right. Obviously, he had his own way of going about things that weren't right. And the, yet the reason is, as, as Guzik says, um, he said, that, you know, they, we, they wanted to be like all the other nations, which is really no reason at all. We often get into trouble by wanting to be like the world when we should instead be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. In itself, the desire to have a king was not bad. God knew one day Israel would have a king. 400 years before this, God gave instructions to Israel about their future king. We read in Deuteronomy 17. A king was in God's plan originally. At the times, it was just actually 400 years prior. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel's, Samuel's response was, He prayed to the Lord. And I can always respect this because... He could have rebuttaled. He could have came back in a way that wasn't honoring uh, to the Lord and, and, and honoring to the people and respond in anger. Because this is your kid. My kids you're talking about. You rejected my kids. You know, this could be a very triggering point for any parent to be able to jump in uh, with both guns blazing, right? People talk about our kids. You know, we're ready to fight. But here... Obviously, Samuel turned to the Lord and he prayed. And that's, that's a beautiful, that shows you the type of person that Samuel was and how he operated and how we should be. Before you make any decision, before you jump into a hasty argument, turn to the Lord and pray. Seek the Lord. Look to God. Ask God how, you were, how, you're to, how you're to deal with this situation. Before you just jump in and you open your mouth and your brain falls out and you regret it and you have to apologize later. Always seek the Lord in everything that you do just prior to every decision that you make. And it was great that he did because God had spoken to him. God had said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. He's basically saying from the moment they came out of Egypt, they have been rebelling against me. From that moment on, all that they've ever done was rebel against me. So they are doing to you, Samuel, as well. Just like Christ told us in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Obviously, it was God's intention to grant them a king. But behind the scenes, we see his providential sovereign hand in all of this. And this is why we do well not to murmur and speak against those things that are in God's power and his power alone. I want to leave you with some applications here uh, as we as we close just a few applications to kind of consider as we move forward throughout our day in the rest of the week <clears throat> you know do not let whatever ministry that god has given you wherever you're at uh, in your life at this point to cloud your judgment don't look at the success of how things work out in your life or how gifted you are to overshadow other things that need your attention Be aware of those things. Be conscious that, you know what, yeah, I may be really good at this. It's okay to say that. But, God, I don't, where am I missing it? Where am I missing it? Well, maybe you're missing it in your family. Maybe you're missing it in these areas. Maybe you're not handling your finances. I mean, just millions of things we could go through. We're not going to. But just would say this. Don't let one area that is very effective in your life don't let that be the guiding rule of everything else in your life. Just because you're a good preacher doesn't mean you're a good father. You know what I mean? I mean, just because you're a great preacher doesn't mean you're a great husband. You know, don't use one means of something God uses you as the ultimate, 
authority and standard to everything else in your life. Be willing to look at the other areas. Regardless of how successful your calling seems to be, you are not immune to sin and failure. Repent. You know, repent of those things where you see you need somehow. Don't just overshadow that with just becoming a better preacher. Look to those other things and say, I need work in these other areas and I really need to slow down and really invest my life in looking at these other areas. Surround yourself with people that can help you finish well. Don't, don't surround yourself with a bunch of idiots. You got a bunch of people that are going to drive your life crazier than it probably already is. Get around people that are going to build you up and encourage you until the end. Trust me. It's an invaluable goal. Don't live the lonely life. Look, I get it. You can probably count the amount of friends you have on one hand. Close friends. Friends that will stick with you through thick and thin. People that you can go to and you can tell them anything. And they will, they will be there with you. They'll walk alongside of you. If you don't have those type of friends, find them. If you have those kind of people, it may not just be a friend. It may be someone older than you. Go to someone and say, would you hold me accountable my life? Would you help me? Would you, get, would you help me succeed? I'm not going to drain you, but I would like to have some kind of, um, I'd like to have some kind of accountability and some kind of meaningful friendship and relationship in my life. God, it's so important. It's so important. And we all know what it's like to not have that, right? But how much we, we need others with us. Reach out to one of the friends here at the church. Reach out to someone here. Talk to them. Go grab a coffee. Develop a friendship with them. Develop this idea that you're going to get people around you because you want to not only glorify God, be pleasing in His sight, but you want to be able to get to the end of your life with no regrets. <clears throat> Don't put your ambitions before what is right. Even if it means you must do something else or make changes in what you're doing. If you've gotten yourself into a pickle or what it is you've gotten yourself into and it's just something that's unraveling you and making your life miserable and you're just not ready for it, be willing to step down and do something else. Okay, allow, say, hey, you know what? Maybe, uh, you know, I need to go be a carpenter. You know, maybe I need to go do this instead. Not that you're stepping down at a lower level of work, but maybe you just need to be doing something else because what you're doing is not necessarily what God has called you to do. Don't let your ambitions blind you. Well, I'm so ambitious. I just want to do this so bad, you know, that, that you literally are just like missing what God really wants to do in your life. Always respond to prayer first before doing or saying something you regret. Don't be that guy or girl getting on Facebook and just blasting someone on there and saying things that you wish you shouldn't say. Don't act like that. I mean, there's so much garbage on social media and different things. The way people talk to each other and call themselves Christians is really an abomination in our day. Be silent. Go to the Lord and then speak to that person. And the last, trust in the sovereign hand of God. Notice that God is sovereign. You know, I know people throw that around all the time because they want to use that doctrine to cover up their sin. But listen, God is truly sovereign, and he truly is providential in our lives. He has ordained everything that comes to pass. Trust him. You know, there's things that, are, that go on, and it doesn't always make sense. And sometimes it can make us more miserable if, 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 we're, not, if we're not in that place where the Lord would desire us, and we don't trust him, and if we keep finding ourselves resorting to other means of the world to satisfy only what God can satisfy in our life. Truly let go. Truly let go. And this goes for like addiction, trauma, pain, unforgiveness. All these things are things that we sometimes can't control. And part of our nature, we want to control everything. But true deliverance and true freedom come when we're able to let it go. And let God have it because he truly is in control. And be settled with that and watch what he does. Let's pray. Father, we're just thankful for the time that we have together this morning. We're thankful for your word. We thank you for the life of Samuel. We thank you for the lessons that are learned. Lord, we only scratched the surface. There are so many directions that we could have gone in these eight verses, Lord, which would be just an infinite um, discussion 
on the things of God when it comes to the life of Samuel. Lord, every word in your in the scriptures, Lord, are, are could go on for pages and pages of exposition. Lord, with the time that we had and the things that we covered, utilize them for your glory. Make them stick to us, Lord. Um, cause them to just be melted into our DNA today. Change our minds, Lord. Help us to understand, even if it's just one thing that we've heard today, through all of it, Lord, that we could take on is from you and walk in that and seek you in that, Lord. That you would be blessed and that we would be a blessed people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.